Hi guys, welcome to uh, session three of the Real Talks podcast. I'm Sarah Alray. And I'm Pram Patel. Today we are joined by friend and colleague Dr. Dwight Turner, who is a psychotherapist, a supervisor, a senior lecturer and an activist over at the University of Brighton. Hi, good afternoon. Yes, yeah, lovely to meet you both at last. So. Dwight, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself before we get started? Like I said, like we said, I'm a psychotherapist. I've been a therapist for about 15 years. I trained up in London at the Centre for Counselling and Psychotherapy Education, uh, where I trained as an integrative transpersonal psychotherapist, which involves learning a range of ways of working, from psychodynamic to more creative ways of understanding unconscious processes, working with dreams and so on. Um, since then, I've worked in mental health, been in public practice for about, God, 13, 14 years, I think, since, since then. And did my doctorate several years ago now, bringing, looking at the unconscious, internalized experience of being the other, being an outsider. So how do we experience uh, racism, sexism, homophobia, and so on? And how does that experience become part of our physical self? So that was my doctorate. And since then, since then, um, the whole world has gone crazy. And I seem to be writing an awful lot around difference, diversity, otherness, privilege, racism. And my work doesn't stop. But it's a pleasure to sit with yourselves this afternoon. I just want to start very quickly with something you've said. Do you think that since then the world has gone crazy or are we just able to see the world being crazy differently today? That's a very well put question. You know, I actually think the world is always crazy. I think right now we're actually starting to wake up and see the levels of craziness around us. I think, I think what the good thing about a question like that is, in some ways to live within a systemic environment where, where within an environment which is systemically prejudiced towards the other, you sort of have to adapt yourself. And that sort of means in basic language, make yourself unconscious. And I think what's especially happened, you know, things like, for example, George Floyd's murder during the summertime, mm -hmm. is that people have, the, the, the scales have fallen away. You can't not see that mm -hmm. in someone. And you can't then not be impacted by and reminded of you know, of one's own layers of um, when we've all endured racism or whatever mm. it might have been. So I think that's a fair question. It's always been there. It has been under the surface, but I think over the past few years, especially in this country, it's we're starting to start to uh, realise just how oppressive the environment is that we live in. I just want to develop that a little bit. Now thinking that through, that last summer I was broken. Mm. And that racialized trauma, I think, is is a huge, huge overlooked section of our of our psyches, our collective psyches. And I was broken not just because I watched a, a man being killed by the people tasked with his care, but I was I was I was absolutely broken because it brought back all of the incidents of systemic, of individualized racism, being spat out. My my parents. Being, being subjected to some horrible physical violence, and myself physical violence and mm -hmm. onwards. And living in that space is so difficult, so difficult. Mm -hmm. And as you say, that internalization is, is, is really interesting. I mean, I mean, how do we even begin to process that as, as people of color, or I mean, I know I'm talking about race here, but of any mm -hmm. other, how do you start processing the fact that we live in a world which is tiered towards a group and the other mm. and if you fall outside mm. of the group mm. how do you process all of those things that you in a lot of ways we can't really do anything about it's some mm. of it we have to internalize and just mm. accept 
Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm yeah, here. I think, yeah, yeah. That yeah. is a good point. I think, I think we, 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 find, we find ways to adapt is one of, the, one of the things. We find ways to try and fit in to that majority culture, to that system, if mm. you like. So we, you know, we silence ourselves, perhaps, so we don't shout out and we don't act too angry. We, you know, we hide ourselves mm. in some other ways. Or we're at home, we take it out on other people around us. That, you know, mm. That's not a regular one, whereby you know whatever's gone on, if we've endured some sort of racist uh, a microaggression during the day, mm. we carry it around and maybe we take it out on those persons when we get home. Mm. That's one of the more unhealthy ways of dealing with it. All mm. the addictions that we, we, we deal with and stuff like that. These things don't disappear. You know, I do a lot of work with, with people who present um, dreams, whereby their internalized experience of racism comes out in some very sort of graphic uh, dreams. I remember one of my own, uh, not so long ago, involved you know, after an incident at, at, at work where I was working up in London, um, having a dream whereby Nazis were actually shooting indiscriminately outside Baronsport tube station in West London, where I used to live, and they actually murdered my black girlfriend in the dream. So that level of internalized hatred for oneself mm. can come out even in the unconscious. And lots of the work that I tend to do, especially these days, is looking at how we can use creative techniques in particular to start to safely explore some of this material. Because I think to talk about it can risk re-traumatization. Mm, mm. But to not talk about it mm. then leaves it in the bodily system whereby it will come out in some other way. You know, there are plenty of studies out the Caribbean, for example, which talk about increased levels of obesity and uh, diabetes in people who've endured racism. It's no different mm. to the neurological problems that women have to, have, to, have to endure through sexism and objectification. Mm. These things have a psychological component to them. Mm. And we're still developing tools to understand that, is my view. Yeah. Can I come in there and ask, in, in relation to the work that you do with um, people of colour in the realm of mental health services and, and support, many of the people that are coming to you to seek support are a captive audience in the sense that they're either ready to make a change or aware that something needs to change before we talk about that in a little bit more detail is there a message that you might have for people who may need that but haven't quite made it to that point yet be brave you know race is not a singular construct so yeah if we're mm. um talking about decolonization and looking at, at our racial identity, it will challenge ideas of whiteness. So I even have you know, people who are white who will come and ask me, want to talk to me about their level of privilege and where they sit alongside, they're brave enough to do so. So I think for those who might see themselves as allies, but are perhaps afraid of, do, afraid of doing that more psychological work mm. to explore that part, be courageous about it. It will be painful. The same mm. way it's painful for, for persons of color. It will mm. be painful to look at what it is to be a white person in a racist society. But without that ability to look at the internalization of that white identity and after the internalization of, of, our, of our POC identity, then there isn't change. Because then we're just rattling around in this same system, doing the same things we're gonna be doing over and over again. Yeah, no, I wholly agree. I, I, I'm really interested in this idea of survival. I mean, I'm sitting here in a three-piece suit. Um, to listeners I'm not really sitting here in a three-piece suit but generally I am and, and the reason for that is 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 I, I don't want people to say you look scruffy or mm. you're or you're aggressive or you're being this that and the mm. other 
or whatever mm. thing. I don't give anyone any reasons to to pull one mm. of those stereotypes out of the bag. Mm. Um, equally, I don't speak like this when I'm at home. When when the cameras are not on or the room, the microphones the are not on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our dialects change, our accents change. In our introduction, I mean, mm. let's be honest, that it was a very very different tone. Mm. And and that's a conscious and an unconscious movement towards mm. whiteness. Um, to anyone who's listening, whiteness is not to do with melanin. It's not to do with skin color. Mm. It's to do with the construct and the power that being white mm. gives you. So us moving as people of color moving towards this idea of whiteness is about internalizing the accent, the way we dress, the way we are. What bits of our culture do we leave outside the door? Mm. And, and and that sort of um, perspective. Do you see any of that within your own work or bringing that out? Because there's an acceptance that, especially with my own experience, that, that we're, we're, we're a subaltern, we're subhuman. Our cultures are subhuman and we have to partake in a culture which isn't ours and be more like that because that's the superior culture, the culture we need to to succeed. Mm. And I think that's got to be quite damaging. I totally agree. And I think the best example I can come up with right now, and it, it, I think it speaks to your point quite quite well, is, is when I get students who come in, students of colour, on psychotherapy courses, and they're challenged, you know, there's always that story about they're challenged to write, let's say, a, 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 an essay on early life attachment theory, which mm. of course is very Eurocentric. Mm. It's like okay, Freud, Klein, Winnicott, Bowlby, okay, white people, men and women. And as a person of colour, often I'm asked the question, can I write something which is more culturally specific to myself? And the, 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 the danger that they go through, or the difficult part they go through is that splitting between wanting to fit in and mm. write what they think the, the school wants of them mm. and, you know, and decolonise in that respect, uh, or write what they want to write mm. and risk for them exclusion um, or being called a troublemaker, whatever it might be. And, Part of my job can often be how do you hold the tension between those two worlds, and actually which one is really resonates more for them. And, and you know, eight, nine times out of ten, they'll go with their own choice, but be terrified of the result. Mm. Mm. Often thing about it is, and whenever it's happened, whenever I work with this sort of material, is often the result is very positive for those students. I'm not saying this is going to be the same for everybody because I've heard other stories from other institutions which are way more horrific, to be honest. Mm. But in that, in those experiences where, where it has worked out quite well, the level of projection, the level of pro project, projection, and therefore adaptations of the projection is huge for mm. those students. They've already learnt that they have to conform to a way of being. And mm. that's not something that's ever spoken to us. Mm. It's not like you've got a list of rules when you walk to the country and say, it's going to act. It's, it's something which, which it's a bit like a death by a thousand cuts. You've stripped away bit by mm. a bit over mm. a period of time. You just learn to adapt. Um, from parents, culture, whatever else. It, it's really interesting the way you phrase that, the students that you supervise. My, I recall when I was completing my um, educational psychology training and the graded pieces we were writing, we were asked to pr create proposals of what we would like to write about. We were given a general topic area and then asked to submit a proposal to our supervisor who would then discuss that with us in more detail. If I remember correctly just now, you used the word permission or something to that effect. 
and it's a similar level of training i didn't perceive it as needing permission to write about the topics that i wanted to write about within the general framework i'm wondering how conscious you are that you use the word permission if you use the word permission let's assume that i do and i probably wasn't aware that i used the word permission at all but it, it shows how ingrained even for myself that struggle can be mm-hmm. why am i asking for permission from an authority Mm. I'm assuming there will be an authority there, so mm. you ask for permission. Mm. Mm. It shows the level of adaptation, even for myself, as a 51-year-old psychotherapist. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, thinking about mental health, and, and as you both know, I have my own struggles, um, and I'm quite open with my mental health. I've been thinking lots about the, enth- uh, the ethnocentrism and the Eurocentrism around mental health as a whole. And I think, I think, I mean, an example of that would be codependency in Southeast Asian culture and South Asian culture, mm. codependency doesn't exist because that's just what society is. Are we breeding, again, a dissonance between between two cultures saying one is correct and one is illness? And it, that's fine in, in a context. But surely that dissonance can't be, can't be healthy for, for those of us from those cultures. No, I totally agree. It's not, I don't think it's healthy at all. And often when I'm working, if I'm supervising students, or students who are going to be off in practice, I'll be asking, I'll be talking about exactly these same sorts of things. Mm. It, you know, this idea that, that the dominant culture within psychotherapy, for example, or in psychology as well, is European and therefore gets to impose its ideas across the world is hugely flawed. And it's, it's no different to any other sort of system that has built up this idea that actually there's one set of ideas. And actually, very keen for myself to do the research around difference and otherness. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to get to understand all forms before, before I die, but the willingness to actually venture outside of that comfortable Eurocentric zone is hugely important. And I think hugely important for, for my, my clients because then they're allowed to feel seen. But those people who who, who pass like South, South Asia, I've worked with many people from, from, from that, 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 arena, that area. And we work well together because I'm willing to engage with, their, with, with them in their world. In some ways, I'm the other in that relationship because mm-hmm. I'm entering their space. The other part of it is, I learn a lot more about myself as well. And as practitioners in this world, in, the, in, this, in this work, there has to be a level of self-development. And it's too easy to say, Okay, I'm gonna learn about myself. I'm gonna sit with just white people, therapists, whatever. I'm learning about myself that way around. Because even Carl Jung, for all his flaws, got the idea that the shadow is the other. The other, if you if only if you engage with the other, you learn some more about yourself through your own projections and so on. And if you're not willing to do that, in my view, then what are you really setting up? You're not actually learning much about yourself, you're not doing the work of being a practitioner. And that would count equally for practitioners of colour and white practitioners? I wouldn't necessarily say equally. I mean, it was, I mean, it, it's a different route. Everybody's got a different route to follow with this one. I think for, um, touching it earlier on, I think for, let's say, POC practitioners, I would say there's, there's well, we're doing it right now. How do we take up our own power and authenticity mm. in an environment which actually encourage that? wrong word, discourages us to have that. Mm. That encourages us to remain silent in some ways mm. and complicit. Mm. I think for us, there is something about picking up the, one's voice. And one of the things that 
one of the fortunate and yet still painful and tiring things about George Floyd's murder was I couldn't keep quiet, had to write something. And in the writing of it, people resonated with it. And that is heartening, it's been touched by it. But that came from a place of being silent too long. It's interesting from the position of someone who's the bulk of my work is within the educational sector and that's similar for Pran as well. I think something that needs to be understood and I'm, I'm sort of working some way to try and understand it halfway through asking the question as well so bear with me. We don't have the choice to engage in education in the same way as we had the choice to engage in personal development through psychotherapy. And one of the things I often ask teachers I work with and other practitioners is think back to the first time you and your teacher were the same race. I didn't have a choice through that process. I went to school. The only choice that we had as a family was where we're going to live. To, to some degree, it was a choice where we're going to live and therefore what school we're going to go to. I, I'm going to go to. How might we encourage the message you're giving for practitioners of colour within psychotherapy in fields where we don't have that level of, of ability to pick and choose? Well, we're really talking about, we're edging towards that more systemic problem of, of you know, which one of the layers is representation. How do we then approach um, greater representation within schools, within psychotherapy training so I come from my angle as well um, and what does that actually mean and look <sighs> this is such a big topic but such a rich one as well I am one for representation I am one for bringing in more POC teachers on different courses not just for the sake of it I'm, I, I'm there I'm, it's, it's got to be um, you've got the schools are schools are located in cultures of their own mm. wherever, they are, mm. wherever they are and I think a school has got to represent or the, the make of that school's teaching staff has got to represent that uh, environment. Otherwise, it's kind of a little bubble, if you like, which people engage with and then come out from the other, on the other end. Um, mm. Another one I think universities are probably better at than schools is having some, you know, when, the, when they have uh, what they call now, student-led groups, which are affiliated to the university and so on, those are those the, the closer that those are to, to the university framework in my view um the more included i think students often feel so there's yeah there's i mean here at the university there are students who have, who have their own sort of afrocentric uh groups as well and those can be quite quite rich and fun to get involved with as well i, I find so the more that we can build on on those sorts of ideas to mm. start with the better mm. i i just want to talk about something personal and my psychotherapist is a white man. And I looked really far and wide to find a psychotherapist of colour. And the, I've got to say, a lot of the, the whole of the sector is very white and also very female. Mm. Um, it's really, really difficult to find somebody who understands what it's like to be another or to understand the cultural differences. And I think, I mean, I mean, I joke and I quip about, I spent 20 minutes of, of one of my sessions explaining mm. what systemic racism is and the internalization yeah. of racism yeah. is mm. to, to my psychotherapist. And it was only when I hung up the call, I realized that I was paying for 
the education I was giving to my mm. psychotherapist. Mm. Is there a movement or, I mean, there definitely should be a movement towards teaching the idea of racialized trauma, of a, a racial lens within psychology and psychotherapy yeah. um, towards, because, because it can't be right that we have a majority to the point of, I could not find one. I, and I, and yeah. I live in London, mm. I could not find one psychotherapist of colour who who had the availability to see me. Yeah. Um, mm. It can't it can't be right that we are now uh, subjected to our treatment is subjected to uh, a white ethnocentric mm. Eurocentric lens. That can't be healthy mm. for anyone. Mm. 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 No, I think you're quite right, and there are I think there are organisations which are coming up. And they're one of that have been around, like the Barton Network, for example, um, the uh, Black African Asian Therapist Network has been around for probably about 10 years, if not a bit longer than that. Mm. And they are a network of um, POC therapists around the country. So, you know, I always recommend if I get calls and I can't take people on, uh, then I'll often refer um, people onto the network. To, to, and maybe I'll help them out to try and find somebody. And we'd like to say, if you try and have a look in your local area, you can do it that way around. That doesn't take away from the the need for education, uh, psychotherapy education, to do more, basically, to do more around understanding systemic uh, oppression and, and racism in this context. And I think there are moves to, to, to look at that. You know, Fanny Brewster, Dr. Fanny Brewster's book, The Racial Complex, talks about race and internalized racism. And it's, but this is only, this book's only been out the past couple of years. So some of this material is fairly new from a psychotherapeutic perspective. Um, there are plenty of studies around otherness, for example, uh, which have been around for a long time, but perhaps don't go into the same in, uh, same depth around race as maybe they could do. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it, these, the sad part is, I think, like any, probably like psychology in, in, in some ways, mm. psychotherapists fall into the same trap of remaining safely ensconced, there's a good word, within its very Eurocentric white perspective mm. and not ventured out for outwards. It even comes down to, you know, where students come from, um, who gets access to courses, these sorts of things should be considered because courses are expensive. I broke my bank trying to, trying to be a psychotherapist. Mm. Uh, ended up, you know, ended up, <laughs> wasn't, wasn't at a university, but still coming up with student debt. Um, mm. to pay off, which used to pay off. I wasn't somebody who had a wealth of money to go and put it all down in one lump sum. Mm. Um, I mean, that's just a couple of ideas. I mean, that really resonates. I mean, it's exactly the same in education and probably and every other sector. Education and psychology as well, absolutely. It's and and it's it's about that word safety. It's in, in, yeah. it's constant to safety because it's difficult to step out of that and, and that's the other isn't it it's difficult to step out and say we're going to do things differently we're not going to use going to use this reading list we're going to be critical and use critical analysis or some critical theory to look at this through a different lens and to do that you put yourself in a position of vulnerability because the people in positions of power and i'm including mm. all three of us here we're mm. in positions of power We've, we've all gone through the same system and we are complicit within mm. that own system. Yeah, it has yeah, changed yeah. Our, the way our knowledge, the way we think. 
So for even for us to take a step out and say we're going to look at things differently mm. is a risk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a it's a it's a risk, and it's a, and and the step is, and I think this is the be- the biggest thing we can do, uh, or people, or allies, or anyone towards towards a liberation or a, a fairer society, is to be brave, is to, is to is to leave our position of safety, and be brave, not for us, but for the people we serve and the generations that come. Mm after us mm. it can't be right that we have endemic numbers endemic numbers of of mental health issues within within uh, the bane communities mm. that that cannot be right it cannot be right that the services for for bane communities are very different to the services mm. for white communities that none of the nobody wins in these situations and I think we really do need a call to action that people like us move first and foremost because we're the people in power making decisions, talking to policymakers. We make the decision mm. to to risk our own our own structures, our own structures, and move forward with a new way of thinking. Because if we don't, who will? It's going to be more of the same for decades to come, in all but in name and genuinely. Genuinely, I don't think today's society is much different to the 80s. And, and maybe on paper, on paper, or there's a, a nice wrapping wrapped around society, but it looks exactly the same to me. So just on that, I can't speak for, for psychotherapists. And so Dwight, hopefully you can, you can support with your understanding from, from your field in a second, but in the world of educational psychology and certainly in the world of teaching most if not all people work for the state in some way we are gatekeepers as educational psychologists most educational psychologists work for a local authority most teachers are employed in a school i know with the academization of schools there's a slight structural change but overwhelmingly the system within which they operate does not offer the kind of time and space for practitioners, for professionals, very highly trained professionals, to be able to take that time and space to think about what am I doing, how do I feel about what I'm doing, and what impact does this have? These types of questions, for me, the ones that I was desperate to, to allow to be allowed to reflect on and take time with in my supervisions didn't get the kind of time and space in supervision that I that I craved for them. My supervisions were spent focusing on casework um, and that's not a bad thing. I had good supervision in that sense but the professional development, the changing the, the, the landscape, it just wasn't an option because of the nature of working in the public sector. What yeah. what's the, what's your experience well, of that, that then? I think I think you're both on the, on the right track. Even within psychotherapy, you know, many of the, of the institutions that people come through and the places that people engage with on the on ways of becoming qualified are part of the system, the NHS system, the, or whatever whatever it is. And, and I think that having that reflexivity, although we're encouraged to be reflexive. To, re- to reflect on the fact that actually we have a moral responsibility or an ethical responsibility to 
broaden our reach mm. it doesn't always come in it, it's um the majority i think the vast majority of therapists don't work within institutions but they are they are still part of a capitalist system where there's a need to make money mm. and that need to make money isn't going to be isn't going to be met if you're working with a different class or, or culture of, of, of client that makes sense but I also I also agree with yourself. Or part of the reason why we're sat here talking about this right now, is that that moral drive for me comes from within, and I don't think one. I don't think. Well, I'm not talking for myself. I can't stifle that because it would cause me intense psychological pain to do so. So, as you know, I, I agree with both your points about being the, the gateway for the next generation and carving out those spaces. That's what we're talking about. I can carve out those spaces where people can actually have these conversations um, about, okay, I'm working with a, a client who's, I don't know, uh, from the Caribbean originally, uh, but is trans. Okay, what layers of difference are coming to that dynamic there? And where do I sit alongside that? And how can I, you know, how can I work with this client effectively, safely in some way? Um, mm. These are important questions to have as opposed to pathologizing somebody and totally missing the relationship that one might have with them that can be quite healing. It's interesting you mentioned capitalism and I'm sitting here thinking, why do we live in a world where this is so blatantly obvious that the impact and consequences are seen right in front of our eyes? Is it because we are all tiered towards success? And success looks very different if you take the morality out of it. Now, bear with me on this. Mm. By morality, I mean if we centre everything on efficiency, on a corporatization of human emotions, and onwards and onwards, because I can measure that. And that whole idea of a factory conveyor belt. Mm. I, and I think we're all entrenched into... into, into yeah those epistemic models that we measure it we make it better we invest money here they get better they make more money and i think that's the real problem that within mental health services inherently you can't measure it in the same way that we measure products oh, yeah. that's a good point we can't measure it the same way we're talking about the, the human interaction and what what's the you know what's the 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 I hate the word patient the client getting from the service that we actually provide is a more qualitative um, experience. It's not one mm. which can be quantitatively measured. Mm. And I think we're also, this is a very, it's a culture which very much philosophically looks at you know, them and us. Mm. So we, we objectify the other in, in some way. And then we can actually analyze what they're all about. And I remember you know, earlier on, Brown, you, you used the phrase BAME uh, earlier mm. on. It's not a mm. phrase that I'm particularly fond of, mm. but it's, it's one of those sort of terms just come in for me, it's coming from outside of the, the POC sort of environment as a way of trying to measure, um, designate or, and understand the other in that respect, mm. the racialized other. And yes, I talked to me about the other day, sometimes labels are necessary, but there is a limitation there. And when we, when we, mark, when we take out the human aspect of that, mm. okay, mm. what does it mean to be labeled as BAME or POC? I, I wholly agree. Uh, I was just reading Toni Morrison, actually, and the way she talks about the language 
doesn't just limit our understanding it causes the damage it's part of the structure mm. that brings us down and I, I wholly agree with the issues with BAME and person of colour or PLC mm. um, because it, let's be honest and this is to everyone listening is you can't put people in massive boxes the BAME the BAME label encompasses 80% of the world's population <laughs> so <laughs> It just doesn't make sense in reality. Yeah. Oh, look, it's really diverse. They've got lots of BAME people. What? Yeah. What? Yeah. Even with, I mean, we joke that even within the diaspora of, of tiny little states, you'll have masses of differences in culture. Yeah. Huge Absolutely. differences. Yeah. So to sit back and, and use terms like that, and I think that that's really, really powerful as well. Mm. So I'd like to say thank you there, Dwight. Um, or Dr. Dwight Turner, I should say. Yeah, I think the title is. Well, well, I've been. <laughs> I yeah, but I'm amongst friends today, so I can tell you, respect, uh, you know what? It's, it's, it's been good fun. No, no, absolutely. It'd be great to have you on again at some point as well to, to further, further our thinking in the sector and, and thinking at, at overall. Um, so thanks again. I've been Pram Patel. And I've been Sarah Falray for the Real Talks podcast. Thanks for tuning in. 